Hi there, and welcome to the Birth Story Therapist Podcast, a safe space for mamas and parents to share their birth stories, discuss common issues experienced with parenting, feel heard and validated, engage in discussion about the complexity of their motherhood journeys, and how they manage their mental health along the way. Come here every week to hear from mamas who are just like you, figuring it out one day at a time. Hear from myself, Crystal, licensed therapist, host of this podcast, and private practice owner of Southeast Perinatal Counseling. I specialize in maternal mental health, if you haven't guessed already. I'll share helpful tips and techniques to manage your mental health as you navigate motherhood, both in the perinatal and postpartum period, as well as bring on other mamas so you can gain from their history, their stories, maybe some gems that you can apply to your motherhood journey. And of course, I also have on professionals within the maternal mental health space that might be able to offer additional techniques and resources to help you along the way. Today's episode is going to be an exciting one. The next voice you'll hear is that of our very first guest provider here on the Birth Story Therapist Podcast. I'm so excited and so honored to share in this hour with her. While I'll let her introduce herself so that you're able to hear about the waves that she's creating within the maternal health space, I just want to extend to you, Mrs. Williams, a complete honor and appreciation for your time, for you um, being authentic with bringing your story, the professional work and the expertise that you exist in um, to our listeners and, oh man, I mean, to have another provider on has always been my dream. And so you're making it come true. And I think it's just amazing that we're able to um, show to our listeners um, and to the community, really, that there are providers that are all over the country who are able to um, meet clients exactly where they are, whether it's um, during birth um, with their breastfeeding journey or throughout motherhood. So I'm really excited for you to share who you are and what you do, where you're located, and any other information. So tell us. Thank you so much, Crystal. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So my name is Shauna Williams. I am a licensed clinical social worker working as a perinatal mental health therapist. I also am a trained doula and a certified lactation counselor. I'm actually currently in the process of becoming an IBCLC or lactation consultant. So that's very exciting. Um, I also am a Reiki practitioner, level two practitioner. And I also am a certified infant massage instructor. um, And I use all of that work together really to serve the needs of folks in the perinatal period, particularly those who are at increased risk of having negative mental health outcomes. So that means um, Black women and women of color. Um, but we know in the United States that Black women are, have the most concerning statistics around maternal mortality and um, our babies have the most concerning statistics around infant mortality. And I target that population, um, keeping in mind that I'm also focusing on people who have Um, an increased risk for negative emotional health outcomes related to previous mental illness, um, previous experiences of trauma or loss. And really that all shakes out to really center the group that I am focusing my research on as a doctoral candidate um, in the Doctors of Social Work program at Widener University in Pennsylvania. 
um, where I'm doing my research on the needs of Black women who are experiencing pregnancy after had it, having a previous loss experience. So um, that is where I do my work in the greater Philadelphia region. And it is a personal and professional endeavor for me. And I'm so happy to be here and have a chance to talk about uh, it. You are doing such amazing work. And I am excited for others to be able to hear specifics about it, particularly um, your research and um, how they can interact with you within um, the digital world or in person. Tell us how this all got started. What, what got you into the maternal health space? So what's interesting is I was thinking about my journey, and it really is an intersection of the personal, professional, and the spiritual experiences that I've had. So when I entered um, this world as a social worker, I had already had a history in doing sexual health, and I also have a master's of education in human sexuality studies. So I knew I wanted to do some sort of work supporting folks around sexuality, and that really ended up being that I was focusing on doing family therapy um, with people who had trauma, typically uh, sexual in nature. And what I found was that my intention was really around helping kids, and I've always loved working with kids, but I found that you can't really help children if you're not willing to help families and not help parents. And I actually noticed that my children that I was working with that had the most intensive behaviors were people who the children might not have had the trauma. It was the parents. And particularly parents who had had experiences around their own abuse history, their own sexual trauma history. And they often reported some sort of trauma around birth. Either there had been some miscarriage or they didn't want to be pregnant or they had had multiple losses, but they just were reporting this to me. And I was like, that's interesting. Um, and I kept thinking to myself, I really wish I was here earlier to support you then. Maybe the problem wouldn't be this extreme um, because I work with families where kids were doing pretty extreme behaviors like hurting others, hurting themselves, um, running away, suicidal ideation, things like that. I kept thinking if someone had been here earlier to help this parent support this child, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And that rattled around in my mind for a while. And then I ventured into other paths of work and I just kept ending up encountering mothers everywhere I went. Um, and mothers who were even in the middle of our work experiencing loss or were talking about loss, pregnancy loss and infant loss experiences. And I really was like, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, but while that was happening, I also was um, newly married and we had decided to embark on the family journey. And um, shortly after we got married, I got pregnant and I was so excited to have my first child and um, unexpectedly, in the second trimester, we went to our appointment to, for the gender um, announcement for them to tell us if our baby was a boy or a girl. And instead, we got the news that our baby's heartbeat had stopped. And my world essentially stopped then. Um, and it was so devastating, to put it mildly. Um, I was really, really just floored with how much that grief took over. And I just prayed in that moment spiritually for God to just heal me because I was so, so broken and to help me find peace. And then we got pregnant again, um, not quite two years later. And I was excited. I thought everything was coming back. I was going to have this baby and everything was going to be perfect. But shortly after I got pregnant, I felt like something was wrong. 
And I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And I told my husband, I feel like I'm going crazy, but I just feel like something's wrong with the baby. And sure enough, we went in for uh, my first um, ultrasound and we had had a miscarriage. So that time I was still very sad, but I was more angry. And fortunately, my spiritual life, I believe I serve a creator who can hold my anger because I was very angry. And I just said, listen, God, all right. Okay, so you done bought me through the first one. Now you got me in the second one. I'm going to need you to get face to face with me and tell me what it is you want me to do. Okay, because this is too much. Um, And I was doubting if I could have children. I had a family member point blank say to me, maybe you're not ready. You're not meant to have children. Um, It just was a really, really scary and hard space. And then I became pregnant again. And I really struggled with anxiety. Every appointment, every symptom, every moment was filled with anxiety. Um, And people wanted to celebrate things and and make announcements. And I just didn't want any of it. And um, then I gave birth to my son. And I wouldn't describe my experience as one that was a traumatic birth experience. But I will say that, that it... I was left coming out of that birth feeling a good amount of shame instead of joy about my birth experience. Um, But I loved my baby. I was over the moon with my baby. I didn't really get attached until I'm going to say maybe 24 hours after he was born. I didn't even allow myself to really feel excited until then. Um, Maybe I had some excitement at around 38 weeks, but it was still mostly nervousness and I was afraid. Um, So I was dedicated to giving him the best I possibly could. And that meant breastfeeding. And I got a lot of, I had a lot of challenges with breastfeeding. And I also really wasn't supported. I mean, people in my family were actually upset with me that I was breastfeeding. And some of my friends didn't understand and were giving me kind of like, you're not going to be able to do it. And I was like, wait a minute, after all I went through, at least allow me to breastfeed without judgment. What is this? Where is this coming from? Um, so I got a little bit of support, but I had to figure out how to find out where to get it. Um, and then it was time to go back to work by the time I got halfway figuring out how to breastfeed. And I went back to work and shortly after I just developed these emotional symptoms of just, I was angry all the time and, and despondent and just kind of miserable and I loved my baby. So to me, the images of postpartum depression were people who didn't feel attached to their baby or thought of harming their baby. And I didn't have that feeling. So I figured, I don't know what's wrong with me. Everyone is just annoying. That's what I thought. And one day I was talking to someone in my life who I felt comfortable enough at that time to share how I was feeling. And they said, well, what is your problem? You finally had this baby you wanted so long. How dare you be mad about anything and miserable? You got a husband, you got a baby. What's your problem? And um, later on, I realized that person wasn't quite as safe as I thought they were. But they did bring up something important. This didn't line up. This emotion I was having didn't really line up with my expectations of being a new mom. And so I called a perinatal mental health therapist. I didn't realize it was its own field at the time. I just called someone who knew about postpartum challenges. And she said, yeah, what you're experiencing is actually symptoms of postpartum depression. And I went to therapy 
And it was so amazing for me. And I came out of that space like, wow, if I could help parents, if I could help parents who are going through this, that's what I want to do. So when I entered my doctoral program, um, I was looking for my research topic. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I wanted it to integrate sexuality and trauma and things like that, but I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But I, I was already starting to do community work at this point. I had gotten involved in my local um, breastfeeding coalition in the in Delaware County, where it's where I live outside of Philadelphia. And um, I was given an opportunity to co-facilitate um, a training on trauma and parenting and breastfeeding. Um, and I, as I was doing that, I was talking with some folks in my program about what I was doing and people were like, we have never heard anyone talk about this before. Now, these are all social workers, all people who were trained in, in clinical programs. And they were like, we have never heard what you're talking about. And then a few people were like, I can really relate to that experience, but I've never heard anyone talking about it. There's research out there that says that other people have gone through this. I was like, oh, I'm on to something here. Um, so that was how I started really doing the research. And in all the research, I came across doulas as effective intervention. So I said, well, let me go and explore um, this. And I went to a doula training um, led by um, a woman who specializes in really addressing racial disparities and, and celebrating the tradition of the 20th century African-American midwife, uh, Mama Shafia Monroe. And I was with Mama Shafia for maybe a couple hours and I was like, oh my God, I'm a doula. I didn't know it. <laughs> how, how did I miss this? I am a doula. Um, I don't know how I'm going to fit this in with this social work and therapy stuff, but I'm a doula. So becoming a doula meant that I was still not going to leave behind all this therapy knowledge and this knowledge about trauma and things like that. So I decided to start to kind of look at breastfeeding outcomes and, and learning about birth and the connection to that. So I started to focus on families who had um, these sort of experiences where they were, they were Black families based on the literature I was seeing about the real human rights crisis facing Black mothers. And um, in that work, I was targeting folks who had history of trauma. So almost all my clients were, they were sexual trauma survivors. They were um, they had already had mental health diagnoses. They had challenges. They had had a previous loss. And um, as I got to a point where I was doing that work, I was working in my full-time job still um, at the university where I was working, um, running a social service organization and working as a professor. And I realized that I wasn't able to balance the two. So I need to go into doing this, need to pick something and kind of stick with it. And it really became my perinatal work that just was a passion and had taken over my life. And I figured out, you know, I'll still be able to teach and things like that, but to really make this my full-time endeavor. And in doing that, um, I met with someone who was helping guide my business, a business coach. And she was like, so who are you going to serve? And I told her who I love to serve this population with this needs. And she said, well, that's a specialization, but that's not really like your niche. What's your niche? Who is the person that you would see if there was no money involved. The person who you go to bed at night thinking about and wake up exciting to, excited to meet with and you really get deeply invested and involved in their particular set of challenges and the way that they're navigating. And when I thought about all the clients I love um, who really rose to the top of my work, 
and I really love all of my clients, but the ones that I, I was like, I, I just resonated so much with were my clients who had experienced pregnancy after loss. So I said, you know, I had, maybe it's because I have my own personal experience. Let me go look at the literature. Let me see what the literature, the research is saying about this population. And when I went to look, there was not really anything. I think there's just been a book released about pregnancy after loss that has a chapter on cultural considerations. There's really not much of anything about Black women. And so I said that that really needs to be my focus. So I've, I've focused my research and my work on this population. Wow. Um, it, it, it's obviously needed. You know, you took us through literally the beginning of your journey to where you are now. And through every turn of your story, um, there was opportunity where Black women and people of color have not been served and um, resources not being made available, um, even for educational purposes. I heard you mention um, your own story, and I have a ton of questions for you <laughs> from your sharing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I, I guess I want to just start with, the, you mentioned a very interesting starting point for you, um, specifically having been working with children and um, being intrigued by uh parents of those children and understanding that you would probably gain more footing and better outcomes if parents are also being worked with and they're a part of the Mm -hmm. intervention as well. And so talk to me a little bit about the idea of the family unit being a part of goals being met with regard to maternal care in general. Talk to me a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was definitely what I was I was seeing, and I'm thinking there was one family in particular that really stands out, where the kids were just really embodying PTSD symptoms, and um, they hadn't really experienced something that would rise to the level on um, the ACEs questionnaire, right, or the adverse childhood experiences a questionnaire that sometimes therapists use to look at does this person have the amount of experiences that might lead to some of these behaviors? But mom did. And mom had a really extensive trauma history. And she also had had experiences of pregnancy loss and infant loss. And um, that she really stood out in my mind when I went back to the research and really looked. And I I do a presentation on this often um, called When the Village Hurts. And I talk a lot about the fact that um, often what we know is that people with increased or high levels of adverse childhood experiences, and that include, you know, things like child abuse, sexual abuse, um, loss of a parent, uh, living with a parent that has mental illness or is incarcerated, all these sort of things that we can experience prior to becoming parents. Um, they are actually at increased risk for experiencing negative outcomes related to pregnancy and birth. So they're more likely to lose a baby or experience miscarriage or stillbirth or infant loss. And um, then those folks do become pregnant. They have their baby. And what we know about experiences of birth is that people who have had um, previous experiences of trauma are more likely to experience circumstances 
that are challenging or upsetting as traumatic. And that doesn't minimize that they are not traumatic just because of their perception. I mean, often it is so common when I talk about birth, people often say, hey, birth is traumatic anyway. Like it's just something that we say, which is unfortunate because that's that shouldn't be the case. But so many people experience scary life altering circumstances during their birth. But these are folks who are more likely to come out of those experiences, what we call postpartum PTSD or postpartum mental health challenges. Those experiences of having the set of symptoms that come with that when your baby is young, so much about how you interact with your baby forms their understandings of relationships in the world. And we find that these parents are not often identified or not often getting good treatment. Um, and then that causes a lot of disconnection and um, mental health challenges with babies. Um, and sometimes it can last for years, sometimes until babies are um, three or four years old, before the parent kind of start, starts to come out of the fog of just the mental health symptoms just surrounding the birth, birth experience, which sets that child up to have developmental and emotional um, psychosocial issues and behavioral challenges. And the parent it might then be experiencing challenges around parenting that child around those behaviors and the way they respond may not be helpful and they may have more challenges regulating their own emotion around that. And it builds this cycle where then that child then grows up having then had experiences that are less than ideal for development into adulthood. And then they get pregnant. So that is how I have seen these family histories play out. We know that pregnancy loss, when we do a family tree and ther therapists often do a type of family tree, right, called like a genogram. We see pregnancy loss as something that appears as a pattern in families. Now, when we layer on race, we know that historically, going back to the experience of African-Americans in the United States, pregnancy loss was a frequent part of our journey. Birth trauma and trauma in general was much around sexuality and reproduction was a huge part of our experience in slavery and even in the development of the field of obstetrics and gynecology. And so we have seen generations upon generations, and there's this amazing field of epigenetics that looks at the ways in which those experiences actually get encoded in the way that our genes are formed and, and may alter, and that comes out in various generations. And so it's just been so interesting to me that this area of focus has not been highlighted um, until more recently, we started talking about Black maternal health and infant outcomes. And it is so true. There is concern and it's valid concern about the life and maternal wellness of um, and, and life of babies and mothers. Um, but the emotional piece has not been focused on enough, in my opinion, particularly taken into the context of how we were taken from our home, uh, our home in Africa, brought here and mistreated. Um, in such horrible ways. Yeah, you, uh, I appreciate the fact that you um, highlighted that cycle. Um, as you were sharing, it, it took me back and allowed me to reflect on my first experience within my career of working in the community setting with at-risk um, or high-risk uh, pregnancy and postpartum moms 
um, for health outcomes, specifically because of disparities within the community. Um, and yeah, that, that cycle does continue. It, it, it certainly does. And you brought up the interesting point of um, them experiencing their own struggles within the perinatal mood and anxiety disorders or um, PTSD specifically, and mm-hmm. not realizing the developmental outcomes of their child. Typically, when you mention three to four, it, it's usually when they go to school and someone else is there to screen, yeah. right? Like someone else is there to mm-hmm. sort of help them and um, pick up on those signs and symptoms of those developmental um, challenges. And it, it, it's so disheartening. I heard you at the end of um, your your discussion a moment ago just mention um, you know, being taken from um, from our home in Africa and being brought here and, you know, the horrible treatment that we've had. And we, you know, look at how um, medical care is within the United States. And I mean, it's limited <laughs> um, mm-hmm. showing uh, studies with us in it because we are not intended to be in those studies. And um Right. We are in 2021, but um, I there's a theme that I continue to hear within my practice from women of color, and it is, why in 2021 am I still losing my baby? Like, why is this still happening? Yes. Um, and I think mm-hmm. all of that, everything that you've mentioned has to do with it. The fact that we're not... Um, <laughs> Where, where it, it, I always bring up slavery as well, because I feel like, you know, throughout time, we have created this tough shell to where we kind of mask our pain and we say, well, you know, this this is the card that we've been dealt. We kind of have to figure out how to pick up our pants and move on, you know what I mean? And not really deal mm-hmm. with what's going on. And in some ways, we kind of normalize that pain and... Um, mm-hmm don't necessarily see it as abnormal. You mentioned like birth should not be traumatic. It should not be traumatic. Um, But our experiences Mm -hmm. tell us otherwise and our past experiences specifically. Um, So I really appreciate you highlighting that. Thank you. And and you're making a point that reminds me of a quote um, by Dr. Monica Lamore, and I'm going to mess up the quote, but she basically says, um, if we really want to make changes for Black women in the birth outcomes, the first things we need to do is stop blaming Black women. Because much of the research in the in the media headlines says, oh, Black women, um, Black maternal mortality, and being Black is dangerous, they give birth. And I don't blame women and women of color for saying like, well, why? Help me understand that. And I even had a doula client call me one day and she said, oh, um, my doc, my uh, midwife told me I need to take this medication. Um, and I said, well, why? And she was like, I don't know. She just said it's because I'm Black. And I said, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and she said, um, no, she said I need to take this, this pill to help my birth outcome since I'm Black. And I said, what on earth? There is no pill that, first of all, blackness doesn't need to be cured. And what is this pill going to do to your melanin? Like, I'm trying to figure this out. And I went back and found the research study that most likely this midwife was referring to. Um, But the problem is that we've attached blackness um, to negative health outcomes without really identifying the real issue is systemic racism. 
the way black women are treated in, in the medical system and implicit bias and unconscious bias um, in the system. It's not us being black, but because the focus has been on our blackness, much of the targeted interventions have been, well, let's just get black women to do something different. Um, let's change their behaviors. Let's tell them what they need to be doing in their prenatal appointments and what they need to be saying it to their doctors and how they need to be treating their babies. Don't do that with your baby and don't do this. And, oh, you need to do that. And, and I get very frustrated and I sit in rooms with professionals often from uh, interdisciplinary in interdisciplinary settings where we're having these discussions and it always seems to come back to, well, let's get black women to change. Let's give black women a pill. Let's let's have black women do something. Let's give them a crib in their house. It's, and I'm not saying that those things can't be helpful, but you have not, when we talk about racism, you're like, oh, we don't need to talk about that. None of us in this room are racist. And I'm like, the system is racist, right? And so women often come out of it like, well, why isn't this being solved? And a large part of reason why it's not being solved is because we're too busy blaming black women and focusing all our programs on changing the way Black women behave, instead of saying, why don't we as the medical system, the medical industrial complex, do something different? Yeah, it it, it it furthers the conversation. It's a needed conversation. I feel like everyone kind of talks around it and it sounds mm-hmm. good to say, you know, at the systematic level, things need to be changed, but, you know, what work is actually done. So I really do appreciate providers and researchers like yourself who are literally putting your foot to the pavement and spreading awareness and doing the the research and building literature so that our voices um, can be heard, but also our outcomes for ourselves and, you know, our generations to come can be better improved. So I appreciate you. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I am on this journey and it wasn't one that I would have chosen, um, but out of my experiences, this is where, you know, I, I've been led and I feel very strongly about this is the focus that I have been chosen for. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the spiritual aspect of loss and I've had mm-hmm. um, mamas on here speaking about their loss journeys and um, it's mostly been, you know, I'm a person of faith and things of that nature. But you spoke about it um, in terms of that second go around with your loss experience Mm -hmm. and really having to come to terms with like, whoa, you know, like, God, what is happening here? And so talk to us about, Mm -hmm. um, because oftentimes, let me just say, (laughs) in our community, the Black community, um, and possibly even communities of color in general, we sometimes... Mm -hmm aren't as authentic as we could be with sharing questioning God or um, Mm -hmm. even being upset with the decision that has happened (laughs) that God has unfolded for us. And so talk to us about um, the authenticity um, in your story with regard to spirituality. Yeah, thank you so much for highlighting that. It is such an interesting experience spiritually. Um, and I do identify as a Christian. I love like so many religious and spiritual paths. I have so much um, appreciation for all of it. And I've really looked at a variety of ways in which different spiritual denominations and um, the spiritual paths 
deal with pregnancy loss. And one thing I will say that is unique to African-Americans and their experience of Christianity, perhaps compared to other people who may have other people of color who may have some connection to their more um, indigenous uh, faith or their faith that comes from their culture, um, is that there is ritual around loss and grief experiences. Um, And it can be, um, and often religion and culture can intertwine in a way in which um, I was working with a student from another country and uh, one of my colleagues lost his, his sibling and came back to work within, you know, after his three bereavement days. And this student could not believe it. She was like, wait a minute, where I'm from, you don't go back to, like, you dress in black for a month. Everybody comes and brings you food. You stay in the house. Like, what is this? What is wrong with this person? How could y'all allow this? Um, and so there's rituals around pregnancy loss and honoring a baby who has passed and acknowledging it. And um, there is definitely those elements in some of our indigenous Black uh, faith, right, and um, African spirituality, but in African-American Christianity, which has really been influenced by white supremacy's influence on Christianity, the focus then becomes, well, God don't make no mistakes. And I remember going to an event not too long after I lost my baby. I mean, it was it was definitely a while, but it was one of those things where I kind of got pushed out of the house into this event. And the person who was running the event was a minister. And shortly after my baby was born, a person who worked with him sent me a basket, um, which was really felt like a very heartfelt, sincere notion to acknowledge that my baby had died. And I was really pleased and, and felt appreciated by that. I didn't realize that this person didn't really understand the full story. They knew a baby had been born and they okayed the, the payment to get the gift sent, but they didn't know that my baby had died. So he comes up to me at this event at a table full of people and he's like, hi, congratulations on the baby. Where's the baby? Who's watching the baby? And my heart hit the floor. I was like, oh my gosh, this person does not know my baby died. And I was like, um, my, my baby died. And I didn't know what else, how else to say it. And he was like, oh, his face, he turned, he was a, a person of color, but he turned white. Just like, I almost felt bad for him in that moment. And he said, uh, God don't make no mistakes. And you know, the baby's in heaven now. And he just started giving me all this diatribe. And I was like, okay, this person cannot, like, I don't want to hear any of that, but I understand that this person has no other way theologically to make recommends for what just happened between us. One of the most powerful things that happened for me, um, was that another minister at my church had lost a baby around the same time that my baby died at the same age. And he came to me and shared his story. And he provided me um, literature that really sat down and taught, really broke down the ways in which you can deal with pregnancy loss um, as it relates to your Christian faith. That book was called, um, oh no, it just left me. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up. Um, oh, I'll Hold You in Heaven. That was the name of the book. And it was so good. And at my child's funeral, he preached my child's funeral. And he told my family and friends in the room, don't say this, don't say that. Like he said everything not to say. Now, it was so powerful and moving. Um, 
And then shortly after he spoke, my family got up and made remarks. And some of them said exactly what he said not to say. <laughs> but the point is, we're not given skills or tools to be able to cope spiritually with the loss of some of, of anyone, much less a baby. So we're, we don't, it's not acknowledged because people don't know how to deal with it. They want you to just, you know, give it to God and understand God answers all and God, you know, it, God makes no mistakes. So then you're left feeling like, well, if God makes no mistakes, why did, why did God take my baby? And so many women often, and, and I work with women who have had losses, but have also um, are experiencing the birth of their rainbow baby or experiencing a birth process in which their baby maybe spent time in the NICU. And it is so frequent that they say to me, well, I thought God was punishing me because I had sex outside of marriage or because I had an abortion or because I did, I didn't do, I didn't go to the college God wanted me to go to. Like we start to make these odd associations with God when we can't reconcile a God who makes no mistakes with my baby died though. And I think that that's the biggest thing that is a challenge in our spiritual faith is that we need people who can integrate our faith integrate suffering and grief and be able to sit with us in that. And then when we get pregnant again, while that is certainly something that is joyful, we need someone who can not just tell us, well, don't stress because that's going to upset the baby and, and just pray about it. And here's a scripture. We need to be able to sit down and hold space for people and help them understand that God can hold. And, and this is theologically based. God can hold our anger God can hold our confusion. You being anxious and questioning and doubting, God is big enough to ha handle all of that. And that's the message that I like to give women that I work with who are people of faith, that God is not angry at you because you are still nervous after you have experienced the death of your baby and now you're pregnant again. You are not sinning because you are questioning. God is okay with that. Other Christians around you might not be able to make sense of that. And they're trying to give you a scripture to stuff in your mouth and be quiet, but God can hold space for that. Yeah, it brings up, Shauna, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. It brings up so much um, within the Black community, within Christianity and therapy and that, that intersection of um, just openness and um allowing for that space, as you mentioned, to be held. And I feel like because we, again, are very much so a, whew, we got to figure out how to move on. We're going to give it to God. We're going to, mm -hmm. you know, you, the, mm -hmm. the Bible says you, you, you have your strength in the Lord and all of those things. Like, but it's so important to leave space for individuals to know that like you yourself also can find this strength, you know, even outside of, um, you know, your faith, like finding strength and being mm -hmm. vulnerable enough to say, yes, I'm angry. Um, or even finding strength mm -hmm. enough to say like, why God? Um, I feel like we don't talk enough about that. And, you know, I appreciate the fact that you mentioned just the language of someone coming up to you <laughs> and asking you, um, you know, how's baby? And you saying baby died and um, them, you know, making a comment. Or I think even when you told your story earlier about that family member who said, well, maybe you're not meant to have children. And I talk a lot. For some mm -hmm. reason, as I was, it's so funny, I was sharing with my husband earlier um, in the week that 
as of late, I've become more so a, a, a grief, I would say referral person because that's mm-hmm. mostly what I've been seeing in my practice. And I'm so thankful for it because there's obviously a need because I have so many referrals for it. Um, but j- just in hearing your story, hearing the clients that I see, the language that is used in grief and loss, when people show up and try to be supportive, it's so important that they have outlets where they can hear and feel empowered to say to someone who's trying to show up for them that the language that you're using is not helpful to me. And I I even heard you say, Mm -hmm. like, I almost felt bad for him in the moment when you were sitting at the table and he, you know what I mean? And so that shame and that guilt comes on to you when you're the person And it brings up so many thoughts in my head just about like how we try and be there for people, um, even within our faith um, and saying, God's got it. God's got your sweet baby. And it's like, no, I want my baby Mm -hmm. here, you know, and being able to say to someone, yes, you're, you're, there's nothing wrong with you saying, I believe in God, but still I want my baby here. (laughs) Like there's nothing wrong with that right. and showing up and supporting people um specifically mamas who are um just trying to navigate um that duality I talk a lot in my private practice about duality and um, having mm-hmm. those polar opposite feelings and thoughts and it being okay that it exists and you not having to choose whether or not in this moment you can be angry that you know what I mean? Your baby has passed or being grateful that the Lord spared your life during delivery. You know what I mean? Like both exist mm-hmm. and it's okay, right? Like you you can have yes. both. So I am so thankful for this conversation and for you just highlighting again the fact that um you can have your faith, but you can still also um be very open and honest and transparent with um with God and how, how things are going with the language that's used around you and how you want others to support you. So I appreciate the fact that you brought that up. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm, I'm really thankful to have a, a space to talk about it because it's one of those things we're talking about in therapy spaces that are not, it's not being talked about elsewhere. And so people are in isolation and suffering. And one thing I noticed, I'm, I'm so glad you talked about like duality. Right. Because when you think about pregnancy after loss, that is a space of Mm -hmm. duality. You're so excited and you are so frightened for this baby. And let me say that that everyone's experience is a little different, Um, but especially for moms or parents who have experienced multiple losses. And that seems like it can't happen. And I and I've and I've had encounters with people who were like. They may not know my story, but they're like, wait a minute, that can't happen. Kenneth, she said she lost this baby and that baby and that one too. Well, something ain't right. She she ain't telling the truth. Or and that's we just don't want to believe that something that horrible can happen. But it it is way more common than we talk about. One in four women experience pregnancy loss. Um, and for many of those women within a little less than a year and a half are gonna get pregnant again. And um, we know that loss can happen again, um, but also babies do get born, right? And they are, they're healthy and, but even so we've already been to that darkest side. So now for you to tell us we shouldn't be worried about that 
we already walked that journey in a very isolating space. It doesn't make sense. And the other thing too, is that when we seek help for pregnancy loss, we often go to maybe a pregnancy loss group or pregnancy loss page, and we hear other people's stories and that can feel so, so um, validating, but it also shows us, wait a minute, you mean this could happen again? Wait a minute, this can happen beyond the 12 week so-called safe mark? And you're carrying all of that. So you've been exposed to a whole world that other people don't spend much time in around losing a baby. And it, it, is, it becomes very, very challenging to navigate. And the other thing is then when you become pregnant again, that pregnancy law space no longer, you now are a trigger for those women in that group. And you show up and announce your pregnancy and they can't tolerate it. And that, and I don't mean that against them because when I, after I experienced pregnancy loss, I did not want to be near any pregnant woman ever. I, I couldn't tolerate it emotionally. So now you have to leave that space and you're like, well, where do I go? So I'm starting to see more pregnancy after loss support groups. Um, but I have not seen many where people feel fully represented. They, they come in and, and maybe they are the one of few people of color in the room. And that does, we can't just leave aside race and experience of race in this country when we go into these spaces, it impacts us. And we're not talking about the fact that um, we disproportionately experience this, this loss experience. And when you do bring that up in white only spaces, sometimes that is infuriating to white women who are in the depths of their pain, which I understand, but both things coexist, as you said, that yes, you've had this experience and too many women experience it and it is horrible, but the experience of being black in America has placed us in a place where we experience this at disproportionate rates. Three to four times more likely, right? Three to four times more likely. It's so interesting Mm -hmm. um, that it's even a thing. I I mean, I I, I echo the sentiments of my clients who have experienced loss and, you know, why is this still happening? And, you know, I even go back to my own birth experience um, with my little And I am a therapist. I have been in the maternal world for a minute now. And so I am an Mm -hmm. advocate for myself, but I I can even recall moments within, again, my birth experience in hospitalization where there was a power dynamic where there should not have been one. Um, And Mm -hmm. I know for a fact that it had a lot to do with um, the fact that I was a minority <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. it's just so interesting to hear that even, even as I think of, you mentioned earlier, the NICU, um, I, at mm-hmm. one point was a case manager within a NICU. Um, and I can even remember the discharge and the, um, the hospital stay lengths of, Patients who were of color mm-hmm. and who were on mm-hmm. Medicaid versus private pay and white patients. Wow. And mm-hmm. it, it is very interesting. And I'm not saying that there was any medical negligence going on, but I can recall mm-hmm. just the level of, okay, 
I, I think they're ready for discharge. And I'm like, well, wait, like we still have more work to do on the social aspect so that I can make sure that they're ready for discharge. Mm. You know, like I want to make sure they're just as prepared mm-hmm. as the next person. And so just even thinking about those aspects as you were talking, it made me reflect on um, even the, the spaces that I have existed within and have witnessed. Um Mm-hmm. the the medical disparities um, with regard to health um, as well as social implications. So, yeah, it brings up so yeah. much. That's such a powerful example. And, I, and, and you're right. When you're reading about it, it's one thing. And then when you're experiencing it, it's another. And as a doula, um, I have had white clients and I have had white clients who are not wealthy, right? They're, I work as a community-based doula as well uh, for folks who are on uh, Medicaid. And I have seen the difference in everything from the way the hospitals respond to the parent, the choices that are offered. And, and the other thing is that we often have this expectation that racism and mistreatment in, in obstetrics is mean. Right. People are coming in with their mean voices and disrespectful tones. And I've definitely seen that. But what's not addressed is that that person who that healthcare professional in their nice, sweet voice is just not giving you the same amount of options. Or they're just telling you that you just need to accept this. Right. Um, and they're very kind with it. But I have witnessed that that same thing does not happen for a white parent. And I know that you're also a social worker. Um, I have a social work background mm-hmm. as well, LCSW. And um, even even down to being a case manager in the hospital setting and having to make uh, social services reports. And mm-hmm. um, well, this, this parent doesn't have a car seat. They're not ready to take this baby home. We need to contact DSS. And it's like, for a car seat? Like... Now, for this parent, Mm -hmm. but if we have another parent who is not on Medicaid or not receiving any governmental assistance, it looks totally different. It's like, well, you know, they got to go out and get the car seat. Like, let's give them until the weekend. And it's like, we, it it brings up the bigger picture of one systematic Mm. racism that exists, but also the fact that. The work that we're doing and the work that our our <laughs> brothers and sisters within this this space are doing is so valuable. And the fact that we need to have presence in these healthcare spaces so that we can advocate and can be able to say, like, this is not this is not the way it's gonna go. And my patient can't see it, my client maybe can't see it, but I can, mm-hmm. and because I can. I sort of have a responsibility to serve in this capacity in order to say, no, it's not, it it can't happen. I mean, I can recall so many instances where I've had to like sit in those interdisciplinary meetings and literally rub physicians the wrong way in order to make sure that they do like that. Mm -hmm. This, this, this can't happen. Like this is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And, um, got me in trouble a time or two but it is what it is Um, (laughs) but um it 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 brings up so many so many things um and it's so important that that this work continues and that um again we're showing up in these spaces and that um 
black people and people of color understand that it, it's needed for you to be in these places and not just like, oh, this is my passion, but like we need to have representation in order for others to see that, you know, you don't have to be quiet if you see something happening to you while you're hospitalized or while your little is hospitalized, that you can speak up and speak out against these things. Um, yes, you actually, yes. so yeah, true. you mentioned, um, that you were able to have a successful pregnancy to delivery. However, you experienced mm-hmm. shame and attachment issues. Um, walk mm-hmm. us through, and I know you at some point entered into therapy, but walk us through what it looked like and maybe drop a technique or a tip or something that was helpful for you as you navigated the attachment issues and possibly even the shame that you experienced um, with delivering your Maybe. So um, during my birth, I had with my birth with my five year old, um, I had not really done much reading. I did not want to go to a childbirth education class. I didn't want to go to a breastfeeding class. I think I might have went to one in a public space. But I just felt so anxious around other pregnant people. I was afraid people were going to ask me. Um, oh, is this your first? Which people love to ask. And I was scared of what I was going to say if I would upset other pregnant women. So I hid from a lot of that research. But in my first pregnancy, when I was still had not experienced any of this, um, I had done a lot of research around what birth was supposed to look like when you are trying to have a natural birth, when you're trying to make it take advantage of gravity and take advantage of all the ways in which you can cope without medication. Um, So I did deliver without any medication, um, without epidural. And I always tell my clients, there's no prizes for that. So don't feel like you need to take that on if you don't want to, if you're listening. But I was still, you know, going to do that. Um, but with in it, I, things were happening where I was told to lie on my back and I was like, now, wait a minute. I, I know I'm not supposed to be laying on my back right now or, um, different things were happening that my water, I had a physician say to me, oh, um, I'm, is it okay if I break your water? And I said, yes. And then a few minutes later I said, oh, uh, when are you going to do it? And she said, I already did. Wait a minute. Before you asked me, because she had done the cervical exam before she asked me. So I was like, so those sort of moments stuck with me. And actually, when you're in birth, your brain operates in a way where experiences like that stand out to you and hit your memory making system a little different. And um, it weighs on you a little more. Um, I was frequent and I was told not to scream, but I was not told what to do. Instead, to cope with my pain, and I am a loud birther. I just accepted that about myself, but I was screaming, and everyone was just like, "Don't scream, stop screaming!" And I just felt like I was being like punished, and I carried a lot of shame around that, around screaming, around being loud, around needing to not being responded to. So that was a big piece of the shame that I carried. And I felt so stupid. Like I couldn't talk about it because I finally had a healthy baby. One thing that was helpful for me in struggling to attach to my baby while I was pregnant is, and then when he was born, I'm going to say it took a good maybe 24 hours, was around that time. People laugh at this story all the time. 
but there was a celebrity who had a baby before I did, Tamar Braxton. <laughs> and people were like, you was looking at Tamar. Well, I was. Um, but Tamar shared she didn't feel attached to her baby right away. And she said, I wish more women would talk about that because I thought something was wrong with me. And instead, it just took a little time, but it was really okay. And when I didn't really, I was so exhausted after my birth. I just couldn't feel connected. And in my mind, I was reflecting on what had happened and I just wasn't feeling good about it. Um, so, but because I had heard that story, I was like, I'm normal. I'm okay. It, it's going to come. And after about 24 hours, I was in love. Okay. I, I was in love. And um, that was, that was so amazing. And, um, but I, it also, that love made me think that I didn't have a mental health challenge when I started to express that hyper irritability or that anger, um, postpartum rage, some people might call it. Um, but I was really, really directing it at my husband. And my husband has said to me before this friend had said, I don't get why you are, you have everything you want now. How dare you be angry? My husband has said, you are angry all the time in a way that's not like you've You've had moments of being angry before, but you're angry all the time and it's different. And I was like, oh, huh. And so one of the things that was really helpful in therapy for me when I went later was, first of all, to have a space where I could talk about myself and not anyone else. So what you pointed out earlier that in that in interaction I had with that pastor who um, had asked me about my baby, not knowing my baby had died. You're, you're right. Women, we've often been talked about, we often have been taught in our culture that we're responsible for other people's feelings. We're supposed to make other people feel better, right? Um, and if we don't, then we are, that's a problem with us, particularly as Black women. We are really ridden hard if we, if we have a nerve to not care about somebody else's feelings. So, um, and uh, there's a trauma therapist who I studied with uh, around some of the interventions that I've been trained to use, Mara Tesler-Stein, who talks about that's something that we really have to work with parents around, around loss experiences, that they, they're, they're managing everybody else's emotions and they don't feel like they don't have time for theirs. And theirs need to be handled last or need to be pushed down. Um, and so having a space where I could just talk about me, 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 and tell my story and I could say all the things and... And nobody judged me, gave me a scripture. Nobody told me I shouldn't feel like that. Nobody. She just created space. That was so helpful. I needed that. And that is something that when people say, should I go to therapy? I'm like, yes, everyone deserves a space where you can just talk about you and not have to worry about anyone else's feelings. The other thing that was super helpful was she brought my husband in to therapy. And so working with the whole system was also really helpful. He didn't understand what was going on with me. And there was also some real challenges around just adjusting to new parenthood that we hadn't been prepared for. We thought, well, now we got our rainbow baby. Everything is all right. Well, we're still the first. We're new parents of a living baby. We have parented babies who have died. We haven't had a living baby. And so we need a space to negotiate who does what in the household? How do we communicate with each other? What do we need from each other? Um, and so that was super helpful too, to create space for my, my partner. And my, my husband also had gone with me when I went to these pregnancy law support groups, he went with me. And in a few of these groups, there was dads there as well. 
And that was really helpful too. So the whole system needs support, um, but also there needs to be space made just for that person to just be and say and do whatever it is they need. Those are the two things that I think um, all the therapy techniques were really wonderful, but those two things were so helpful for me. I really needed them. I appreciate you sharing those helpful tips. Um, And as you were talking, you mentioned the aspect of getting the whole family involved. And I think a lot, I'm so thankful Mm -hmm. that you said that because a lot of times we don't necessarily see perinatal or even postpartum um, disorders or challenges also affecting dad as well. Um, You know, that statistics Mm -hmm. say otherwise. And so I'm thankful again that you mentioned that. And we know that dads, like they, the way that they present is totally different. So whereas, yes, anger Mm -hmm. might have been present, rage might have been present within you, dad may have been throwing himself into work to try and figure things out or, Mm -hmm. you know, something completely different. And so I appreciate that so much because- I have moms who come in and they're just like, we have a total disconnect and I'm so confused as to why. And just being able to highlight Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, everything that you're experiencing um, is completely valid and it's true to you, but two things can be true, right? Everything that dad is experiencing Mm -hmm. could be very real to him. Um, The other thing that you mentioned was that that anger that your husband brought up. That's another thing that we don't talk a lot about. We talk a lot about sadness. We talk about depression, anxiety Mm -hmm. within motherhood. Um, As of late, I've also been getting a lot of clients with OCD. So I've even been seeing and hearing a lot more about Mm -hmm. that. But anger and rage is not one that I feel like we talk enough about. Probably because there is so much shame around it. Like, how can you, you know, act out in this type of way? Again, going back to what you said about Black women and, you know, making sure that we're showing up for everyone else in this very nurturing and empathetic type of way. Um, But it all goes back to our needs being unmet, you know, like Mm -hmm. rage and anger. it, It will occur and it will be present when needs are going unmet. And so being able to tap into those things and getting connected with the provider is is so essential to healing. And even with outside of the healing that needs to be done around grief and loss, but even just you as a person, um, understanding mm-hmm. your identity and that there's nothing wrong with anything that you're doing. Um, so I appreciate that. I um, know mm-hmm. that you are also in the lactation world. So am I. I'm a CLC. Yeah. We have so many connections. I'm mm-hmm. so thankful for you, Shauna. Um, <laughs> so I want, before you wrap, to just let us know, um, you know, how you, I guess, advocate and support women, specifically women of color, um, who are breastfeeding and on that journey and possibly even something um, like a tip or a technique that would be helpful for them as they um, continue their journey in motherhood. I know that you mentioned, um, you specifically said, allow me to breastfeed without judgment. And oh my goodness, I was over mm-hmm. here, I wrote it down because I was smiling when you said that because it's something that I say all the time too to my clients, like no, set up boundaries if you need to, create safe spaces where you can breastfeed your baby that's what you need to do. So, I, so tell me, mm. how do you create these uh, safe spaces and show up for clients with regard to breastfeeding? 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I love my breastfeeding work. I love it. I'm one of those strange people that I love when a baby latches and mom doesn't feel pain. Oh, and a first latch. Oh my gosh. My husband's like, don't tell nobody that. I said, I do. I just love to see babies latch. It's so cute and sweet. Um, but yes, I love working with it. And I love working with um, mothers, Black women, because we are in this, there's this historical piece related to our, again, our history in this country in which people love again to just say, well, give Black women breastfeeding mm-hmm. classes and oh, well, let them get in touch with the IBCLC. And those things are good. But we haven't taken into account the way history has set up African-American people to not um, feel comfortable with breastfeeding and to feel more comfortable with formula. And um, so one of the things I do for my mothers is I really try to make sure that they um, know about the resources available to them. So yes, know about how to get an IBCLC or lactation counselor, join a breastfeeding group, join breastfeeding education. Don't wait until, you know, you're, the baby's born like I did, right? I got a one breastfeeding class. And I was like, okay, I'm good. Like I didn't really, I, one class is not enough. Um, so know where to get that support. And I tell people your IBCLC, your CLC is like a pediatrician. Don't wait until you have a problem. See them as soon as you can. Don't leave the hospital without being asked to be seen by the lactation consultant. And don't make decisions about giving your baby formula, a nipple shield, a pacifier without consulting them. Because the nurses and doctors will come in and they will tell you what you need to do. And we, and we know that there's an underlying system around that that can be impacted by systemic racism and most likely is. Um, and so they're they're telling you what to do, but they're not educated on lactation, not at the level they should be. And so um, you need to make sure that you're seen by a lactation care professional who spends hours upon hours really, really studying lactation. I spend most of my time correcting things that people have been told in the hospital that are incorrect. Um, and we also know that more Black women are given formula in the hospital and sent home with formula than their white counterparts. And before I left the hospital with my oldest, um, well, excuse me, with my five-year-old, my um, nurse came in and said, listen, your baby is not peeing enough and the doctor's not going to discharge you. So you need to give the baby the formula. And I said, but I'm breastfeeding. And she said, no, no, you need to give this formula. That's what you need to do or else you're going to be here. You ain't going home. And I wanted to get out of there. So I gave formula and I got home and thank God my sister-in-law was here when I got home. And she said, how's breastfeeding going? She had breastfed and she was really supporting me. And I said, well, I had to give formula because I wasn't making enough milk. Now, the nurse didn't say that, but that's how I mm-hmm. interpreted it. So many moms, I don't make enough milk. And I'm like, how do you know? Because often the, the markers we're looking for are not correct in understanding our milk production. And she said, no, give me the formula. We throwing it out. And she threw it away. She sat me down. She said, let's get this latch right. Because I said, it hurts. She said, let me, let me help you. She laid me back and latched me. 
latched that baby on my breast. And my little niece was watching. I'm so thankful she watched. But then she did come up to me and say, Aunt Shauna, you know you can give a bottle, right? You really don't need to do this. (laughs) But it was because of her that I continue this experience. And I tell her that all the time and she pushes it off. My sister-in-law, Tanya, she's like, girl, stop. I'm like, no, it was, if you had not helped me, I would not have been able to do this. So the number one intervention I give for black women, especially all women, but especially black women is get you a community. You need a village of breastfeeding people around you or else there's so many voices opposing it in the world that you will ease in, in our world. Let me just say United States. Um, there's, you will easily just go to formula. So that's one, that's one technique I really do. I, I make sure they get that support early on. And I'm like, get, get a village, sis. Join a Facebook group, uh, breastfeeding support for Black mothers. Black women do breastfeed. Go to a group where there's other moms that maybe you can text. Find you somebody who's a lactation care professional or a peer breastfeeding counselor who, who you can text when you have a problem. Don't wait and don't just jump on formula without consulting them. The other thing I do is... Um, is that sometimes because of our life circumstances, systemic racism and capitalism and so much impacts moms that they're back to work at six weeks or earlier. And they're like, they're breastfeeding, their breast milk hasn't even been established yet really well, right? The levels. And sometimes they just are like, I can't pump at work unless I pump in the dirty closet or in on the bathroom and they don't give me enough of a break. And And so I support them to advocate at work, but I also say, listen, if we need to figure out a way to combination feed with formula, let's do that. But let's maintain your breast milk because every bit of breast milk counts. And part of my heart hurts that I have to do that, but I'm fighting, this mother's fighting a whole system. Dad is saying, why can't I get time with baby, which that can be educated, right? Um, family is that we ain't taking that baby because when you gonna get that baby some cereal and I, of course I'm helping mom in that moment but she has to go to Thanksgiving dinner she got to go to the Easter holiday without me and I know that sometimes it's it's hard and then on top of that then you go into work and they say oh we have a breastfeeding room but it's halfway across campus and you have 20 minutes to get there and back well I can't get over there and back before you're questioning me so I I just feel like we I just try so hard to reduce shame around every choice. Like let's let's make it so that baby can get some breast milk and you feel proud of what you can give. Let's say, let's give the most breast milk we can. And then if we got to do other things, we'll do other things. And what I found is that when I take that approach, I've had moms who end up returning to exclusive breastfeeding at some point just because they were able to do what they needed to do to get through a tough spot. And then they end up being able to come back to breastfeeding because there's already so much shame with motherhood. There's so much shame that we're carrying that we just got to give moms support. And I also, particularly my pregnancy after loss moms or moms who have experienced infant loss, they have really high anxiety around milk production. Am I feeding baby enough? Is baby okay? And they're they're worried at a level that sometimes lactation care professionals will come to me and say, I don't get it. Like why this mom is so anxious. And of course, and I make the space and often I find out there was a loss. And so that's also, and we know black women disproportionately experience that. So I try to create real space where I'm like, you're okay. Don't blame yourself. Tell me more about what happened that led you to this point. Tell me about your birth experience. 
Tell me about before you got pregnant. That All of that information helps me understand how this parent needs to be supported emotionally so they can give the breast milk in a, a, for physical health benefits. Thank you so much for that. I'll tell you personally, you affirmed my experiences, um, my little, mm. and, you know, although he is almost two, hearing your words resonates with me even today. And we are still nursing. My husband's mm. like, girl, Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know. Yay! <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but we mm-hmm. also had our challenges and that shame that you speak of, um, it even affected me. And it is so interesting. I talked a little bit about it mm-hmm. on when I shared my birth story on one of these episodes. Um, but the fact that I have been in this space for so long that I I started helping mamas with breastfeeding and got certified back in, I think, 2015. So I, I know through and through, mm-hmm. but still struggled. And it's just a testament to the fact mm-hmm. that that village is so incredibly important, you know, and like have mm-hmm. that support, you do feel empowered and um you see your capacity and all that you can do. And so, um, yes, 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 yes. You you affirmed things that, you know, I needed to hear even 22 months out from our initial struggles with breastfeeding. So thank you so much. Um, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And breastfeeding is not hard, but the everything around exactly. us makes it hard. The challenges, the balance of our life. And I, I have an 18-month-old um, right now. And I was trying so hard to get him off the breast before I got on this interview. So <laughs> I just, just kept him on oh, and did goodness, the interview. Yes. But we have so many things weighing on us that it's just hard. We need, we need support and validation, not shame. We yep, get enough of that. Yep. 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 I'll tell you my, um, so my husband and I, we've been together, man, like eight years, maybe. Um, total. Mm-hmm. And much of those eight years have been long distance. Um, met in college, mm-hmm. but we went separate ways for graduate school and work and stuff like that. And then when we got married, um, I moved to Georgia where he was. And so all of my family is back in the Carolinas. And so that lack of support, mm-hmm. all of my resources, and when I say resources, I mean, like the connections that I've made in the breastfeeding world. I mean, everything left back in Mm -hmm. the Carolinas. So when you speak of that village, I mean, literally down to Mm -hmm. family, down to like your community, all of that is so important when you um, have your little, because you're going to need it. You're going to need it. You're so Mm going to need it. So man, this was, I feel like we can go on and on and on. (laughs) Yes. This This is so fun. I told (laughs) y'all that this was going to be an exciting episode. Hopefully you can come back on and join us again. Um, absolutely yes, yes so again i just appreciate you and the conversations and discussions that you have um opened us up to that we have not ventured into um on the birth story therapist podcast i know it was enlightening for a lot of our listeners affirming there were gems throughout dropped throughout um that i know i picked up as well um and also encouraging in that, okay, Crystal, you have a lot of work to do. Like you, you also need to be out here still continuing to do, to do work. So I just appreciate that push professionally as well to, to get out here and continue doing the work. So 
again. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so appreciative you've created this space and taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, so take care and we'll talk soon. As always, it's important for me to know that this podcast does not replace being connected or receiving therapeutic services from a licensed mental health clinician. If you are experiencing a life-threatening emergency, please call 911 or go to your local emergency room. You can also find additional resources on episode two, one being postpartum.net, where you can get connected with support groups, as well as therapists, psychiatrists, other providers within your community that may be of service to you on your motherhood journey. Again, that resource is postpartum.net, but you can find additional ones on episode two. Thank you.